Can academics really help change the world? And if so, how? We're going to explore this question with Sydney Policy Lab's director, Mark Steers. The Policy Lab is a new invention at the University of Sydney that seeks to build a bridge between researchers at the university and those who create change in the outside world. Mark is the lab's first director, and he's got a curious mix of experience for the role. He's conventional, former professor at Oxford, but also unconventional. He's been a speechwriter for Ed Miliband in the UK's Labor Party. We're going to talk to him about how all those experiences and more have led him to want to build bridges between the university and wider society. Full disclosure too, Changemakers Series 2 has been sponsored by the Sydney Policy Lab. But have no fear, friends. I'm here to ask the tough questions. This episode is a little different from the standard Changemaker episodes. We're going to explore these questions through a new format called the Changemaker Chats. You probably know our Changemakers podcast, which tells stories about people changing the world. Don't worry, we'll keep doing those. But in addition, we'll do Changemaker Chats as occasional interviews with Changemakers. This is a chance to have a more detailed discussion with people making change. Find out what makes them tick, how they make change, and what they've learnt. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. How are you feeling, Mark? I'm nervous. <laughs> oh, dear. You relax. No, no, no. You totally will. relax. So welcome to Changemaker Chats, Mark. Thanks very much. Lovely to be here. Oh, we're delighted to have you here. Delighted to have you in Australia as well. Thank you. So just to start off for our listeners, some of whom um, might not know much really about how universities work and um, the ins and outs of their structure and really how they relate to the community at large, um, can you, as the director of Sydney University's Policy Lab... What is it that you do that makes you a change maker? So our job is to bring people together who wouldn't otherwise meet each other, uh, who, when they are together, can make change. Um, so in the past, universities always worked with people in libraries and in labs. Uh, and our mission is to get the academics out of those places, so out of the library, out of the lab, uh, and into conversation with people from all different kinds of backgrounds, from trade unionists and campaigners and community groups and industry people, uh, so that they can sit down, form a collective view about something, and really plan how change can occur in this country. I guess the implication is that universities need to change. Yeah, I think we're seeing this all over the world, really, that universities are, uh, are understanding that... Uh, the challenges that face them now are different than they were 20, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, and just writing the, you know, the occasional book or occasional journal article or perhaps turning up on a podcast or a TV show isn't itself going to contribute to the, the sort of social change that we're all looking to see. So there, there's, you know, from the United States to the UK to Europe to here, I think there's a widespread understanding that there are so many brilliant ideas in campuses, but they're kind of locked up at the moment. Uh, and what we need to do is to sort of break down the doors, uh, open them up, uh, get people in, uh, sharing ideas and making, you know, sort of effective real plans for change. And I guess the other thing is, and this is totally implicit in what you said earlier, is that there's so many cool ideas in the community as well that we only need more academics to be able to see and touch to be able to come up with new ideas too. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, 15 years ago, I guess people began to think, oh, perhaps there's a great idea in the university uh, that needs to be, and the word was, translated into the real world setting. So, you know, people went on and on about translational science. So so the notion was, you know, brilliant in the university, uh, kind of need in the real world, let's 
join those two things together. And I think what we now know is, is that it doesn't work like that. You know, there are great ideas on campus, but there are great ideas on the community in the community too. Uh, and what you need to do is to put those two things together. Uh, and when you bring them together, you can see real energy, real dynamism, and you know, concrete plans uh, that otherwise wouldn't come into existence. I guess I want to know why you are the person who wants to make this happen. I think it goes right back to childhood, if I'm if I'm totally honest. I mean, I, I was brought up in South Wales in the uh, late 1970s and 1980s, and and some of your listeners will know, um, you know, from watching films, etc., that you know those were periods of enormous disruption and social unrest. Um, in the early 1980s in in Wales, we had a an enormous miners' strike, and um, uh, also incredibly deep unemployment as old industries declined uh, and weren't replaced by new jobs. Uh, and that's that was the world I was brought up into. You know, just phenomenal people who'd been there all their lives working unbelievably hard, suddenly uh, without hope and without you know any prospects for the future. And um, you know, one of my really earliest memories is um, you know being in Cardiff, uh, capital city in, in Wales. Uh, with my dad, and I remember tugging at his trouser leg because there was a huge demonstration walking past, and it was for the um, un- the unemployed movement, um, campaigning against what was then three million people unemployed in 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 the UK in the early nineteen eighties. And I'd never seen anything like it. Never seen that number of people. Never seen that amount of both anger and upset and distress. Uh, and you know, it it really hit home. And and I think you know, th- then you kind of think, obviously, as a kid, you don't know the answers to how you're going to sort all this out. But you do, I think, you carry that with you forever, that sense that it really doesn't have to be like this. There must be a different way of running our society and running our economy uh, that avoids that amount of pain and dislocation. So a deep sense of justice really early on. Yeah, very, very early on. And, and, and you know, uh, South Wales, again, is a very special community. It's a very special place. There's a long history of trade unionism and of struggle and of campaigning. Uh, and you can't kind of move for that when you're, you're growing up. Uh, and it you know is embedded in every aspect of life, if if I'm honest, um, and, and and that stayed with me for a very long time. And uh, I was lucky enough to go to Oxford University when I was 18 years old. And Why did you want to go there? I mean, just I think again, if you're in the UK, the, the, there's a sense that you know if you really want to build change and you you want things to be different, you want to find the centre of power and get close to it and influence it. And I think even as an 18 year old, I I kind of thought that that you know your prime ministers and your cabinet ministers and your captains of industry, they all had Oxford or Cambridge degrees. And so if you could get there, you'd have a chance to, you know, to, to at least do what you could to put things right. Um, but it was an incredibly overwhelming experience turning up on day one and, you know, being catapulted out of uh, a South Walian community right into the heart of the British establishment and trying to make sense of that was a, another part of this kind of journey. Tell me about how you... You described earlier about how you handled this incredibly elitist space, a completely different cultural environment. Yeah, it was really, I mean, it was wonderful, but also unbelievably tough three years, my uh, sort of college years in Oxford. I mean, wonderful because you meet people from all around the world uh, who share so many sort of passions and commitments. Uh, and that was a remarkable thing to see that, you know, this little tiny pocket of the world at my South Wales upbringing was in fact connected with things which were going on in India and Pakistan and Singapore and the United States and Turkey and New Zealand and Australia. Uh, and that, you know, you suddenly have a community of people dedicated to the same fundamental ideals, but with so many different stories to tell. So that was phenomenally exciting. Um, but on the on you know on the reverse, you also come face to face with, you know, an old established orthodox way of doing things, which is very resistant to change, and in fact is 
sort of built and designed to avoid change. I mean, there's a reason Oxford's been there for 800 years. Is it, you know, it does something well and it wants to carry on doing that and, you know, uh, doesn't really want to stop and think very much. And, and so, you know, they, they were years of uh, real excitement, but big sort of daily conflicts, if I'm honest. What was the transformation you experienced there about where you wanted to go next? Like, how did it change you, do you reckon? The biggest shock, I think, and and this was naivety, obviously, is you're suddenly confronted with people who are sort of destined for power. And I'd never seen those folks before, and I never knew their self-confidence, you know. So they were like, you know, third or fourth generation, you know, members of parliament or, you know, sort of owners of big businesses or or even, you know, sort of academics, you know, the, the sons and daughters of professors who are themselves the sons and daughters of professors. Uh, and you suddenly got to see, I think, just how structured opportunity is, you know, and um, and that, again, you, you kind of knew that from textbooks, but seeing it up front and seeing what that means was was really shocking. Um, and I think my final year was probably when it really hit home most, when you suddenly realise all these people who had come to Oxford from different backgrounds were in fact going to go back to different backgrounds, that, you know, the the sort of myth of social mobility was just that, it was a myth, and that you, the people who did really, really well were often the people whose families were doing really, really well, uh, and the people who were very bright and might get a good degree, but who came from struggling backgrounds often unfortunately went back to struggling backgrounds, and and that l- lack of mobility, lack of fairness, lack of openness, you know, was a, was a, real, was a real sore, if I'm honest, um, for a long time. How did that then impact on what you're thinking about what you wanted to do next? You know, like the, this exposure to the education system as a space of ca- often deep inequality. Like how did you take your early values and, and place them in this new space? Yeah, I mean, I, I, remember, I remember looking at the Bodleian Library. It's the big old library in Oxford. You know, it's a beautiful building and has, what, you know, 8 million books. Every, every single book published in the UK has to go to the Bodleian. It's a, it's a law. Uh, so it doesn't have to, you know, they just, they're all there. And looking at the outside of the building and just thinking, look, all of that learning is closed off to the people who are fortunate enough to be members of this institution. And and that can't be right, you know, that you've got to be able to to share much more openly and much more effectively with the broader society and with the broader community. And so from that point on, that was a real commitment, which is that, you know, what can we do um, as people in education to make sure there is real access and real openness to educational opportunity to all? Um, and that, as I say, that 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 image is still kind of very, very clear in my mind. And as a career, like for your for your vocation, where did you decide to place yourself after your degree? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, again, I wanted to wanted to make change, but was a slightly <laughs> slightly nervous young person, uh, and so didn't really know how to do it. So I went back to Wales straight after university and looked for chances there, and and couldn't find it. Uh, then I went back to Oxford and thought, well, I'll, an academic career, an academic route is the the one I know how to do. So I did my doctorate and, you know, I got a um, teaching job at a university in Bristol and then Cambridge University and then eventually in the early 2000s back at Oxford as a, a teaching politics. Um, and, you know, sort of education felt right. It felt like something I, I knew how to do and was reasonably good at. Um, but there was always something at the back of my head saying it's not quite enough if you if you want to build the kind of social change that we're looking for. You're just being in the classroom or just being in the library isn't probably going to cut it. And so that that you know after after a good few years in a straightforward university job, I, I began to think no, actually uh, you know you you need this thing to change if you're actually going to to make the difference I wanted to make. So tell me what was the thing that broke you out of traditional academia? The big breakthrough was you know many years later. Uh, when um, 2010, 
um, an old college friend, Ed Miliband, was elected as leader of the Labour Party. Uh, and I kind of thought, I suppose, at that moment, well, you know, this is an opportunity to move out of straight academia and out of education into the political process more broadly. So, um, uh, I, you know, I got back in touch with Ed and um, we did some work together. And uh, by 2012, I had kind of moved, uh, seconded out of Oxford, uh, moved into politics and was chief speechwriter to the Labour Party um, for three years after that. So how I mean that's a, that's that's the jump right so you were immersed in the in the in the world of academia of writing about social change because a lot of your professional work was actually about social social movement social change processes and then and then Ed helped be a hook. I mean, you're being modest, like you're one of his closest friends, right? You yeah. know. Yeah, no, no. I mean, we'd been really close at college and we'd fought so many student politics battles together, you know, sort of rent strikes and all sorts of uh, all sorts of uh, great, you know, great but relatively minor you know, sort of battles that we had, uh, which played themselves out on local radio and local TV. Um, and then, you know, then he'd gone into professional politics and become a cabinet minister and, you know, uh, eventually leader of the party. And, and I'd stayed within the relatively more cloistered environment of sort of Cambridge or Oxford College. Um, uh, but then, you know, when he became leader, I thought, well, actually, come on, you know, all hands on deck at that point. You know, when, you, when your friend is trying to do something that big there really is a kind of moment when you have to stand up and say, okay, well, I'll do what I can to try and make this thing work. And, and that's where we got to, really. And had you been a member of the Labour Party? Yeah, off and on. I mean, I'd never been partisan, you know, partisan. I'm not really a party person. I'm more sort of motivated by the, the causes and the issues in the communities and the campaigns. So, um, I, you know, I, 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 you know, sometimes been in, sometimes been out of the Labour Party. Um, but, you know, I, I was more driven, I guess, by what he said he was going to try and do to politics in general uh, than I was to a sort of deep loyalty to the particular organisation. So you were going to take, so there was a transformative agenda that Ed Miliband was was um, seeking both inside the Labour Party and externally in the United Kingdom. Some of our listeners won't know much about that. Can you yeah. tell a little, us a little bit about Ed's vision and then also um, how it changed you yeah. as, as a changemaker? Yeah, there were, I mean, two, there were two big parts to the agenda. Um, one was sort of economic reform. So uh, there had been a whole long period from the late 1970s through to the, you know, sort of 2000, 2000s, up until the crash, uh, 2008, um, of running the economy in a particular kind of way. Um, and we know that very well here in Australia too. Uh, and Ed's view was that, that you know, the, the crash meant that you couldn't do that anymore. So the, the, the big banks had to be held to account, that there had to be a change in the way uh, that the public sector interacted with the private sector, uh, that had to be a change in the way that, you know, sort of big fundamental economic decisions were made. Um, and so, you know, the fundamental first part of Ed's agenda was that sort of economic structural reform. Um, and the second part, which was probably, probably closer to my heart, was that he wanted to organisational change as well. So he had this really strong sense that people hated politicians, you know, uh, and he didn't really want to be hated. Uh, so he kind of <laughs> thought, well, we've got to change the way that politics works because you know, it's just not it's just not okay for the whole population to have this sense that the people who've really got power don't live lives like they do or don't understand their perspectives or don't really listen or aren't really interested in sort of getting in touch. And and so, you know, when Ed was elected as leader, that that, that dual agenda he put down, so let's change the way the economy works and let's change the way that politics works. And if we can do those two big things, uh, then all sorts of change might follow. And how did that affect you? I was incredibly, I mean, you know, uh, naively excited, I guess, in the early days. 
I mean, because it did strike me as a as a change agenda, as an open agenda, and you know, relatively, as I say, kind of non-partisan in a way that it wasn't coming from a sort of deep place of just wanting to win an election. It was coming from a place of wanting to change some fundamental way you know things worked. And we worked with some amazing people from far beyond the Labour Party to try and make that happen. You know, sort of community groups and campaigners, uh, you know, people who ran children's centres to people who ran the big trade unions to uh, people who were trying to make huge steps forward in what we called progressive business, uh, social enterprise or, um, you know, corporate social responsibility. So there was a great, you know, kind of clustering of energy and ideas 2010, 2011. Uh, and I was swept away with enthusiasm about that. And I guess the high point was 2012 and London hosted the Olympics. Uh, Ed was riding really high in the polls and we gave a big conference speech in October 2012, which really seemed to capture the moment and certainly captured a lot of headlines. And there was a big sense that, OK, actually something might happen. Um, and even David Cameron, who was then the Conservative Prime Minister, his conference speech, which followed Ed's, actually followed many of the same sorts of arguments that we'd been putting on the agenda. So there was a kind of sense that this might be a moment when the UK kind of shifted from one direction to another. Uh, and that was, you know, mesmerisingly exciting. <laughs> and so what happened? It all fell apart. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, politics is politics. And, um, you know, really from that high point on, uh, the Conservatives got themselves back in uh, shape, partly, I think, because the economy uh, improved uh, and um, we had a huge wage squeeze in the UK after the crash, 2008 crash, and um, people's wages were just getting lower and lower and lower. And that, that started to change briefly, 2013, 14. Uh, and you could see people thinking, all right, you know, if the economy is just picking up again, is this the time to take a big risk? Is this the time to change things? And I think the election campaign we fought in 2015 really was that kind of election. So there was a sense, I think, that of nervousness, you know, that that we might just be recovering. Uh, and perhaps at that moment in time, you didn't want to rock the boat, even though I think, you know, the back of people's minds, you know, from all different backgrounds, walks of life, there was a sense that, you know, this this thing is going to have to change at some point. Um, and then, of course, you know, the rest is history. We, Labour lost the election in 2015. Then the, the you know, sort of the economy started to falter again. There was a referendum on leaving the European Union. And that became the big change moment. You know, people basically said at that moment, ah, you know, let's get rid of all this. Let's start again. Yeah. Such a pity. <laughs> <laughs> what did the experience... Um, inside politics, so you sort of were immersed inside the university, then you're immersed inside of the political machine, even though it's a, it's, it was a change agent political machine. What did that teach you about making change? The, the biggest thing is, again, it's, it's kind of obvious in retrospect, but, but the biggest thing I think is that, you know, emotion kind of broadly conceived matters so much more in mobilising and motivating change in the real political world than it does in academe. You know, uh, academics are not very good at dealing with their emotions. Uh, <laughs> often that's why they become academics. You know, they, people leave you alone in the library. Uh, so they, they often think very logically and very rationally. And, you know, the books we write and the articles we write as academics can be very dry and very technical. And you, you can't, you know, fight an election like that, let alone win one. It's much rawer. It's much more, you know, sort of driven by, you know, people's gut instincts. And, and, and I don't personally think that's a bad thing. I think that is people trying to make sense of some really difficult decisions. You know, is the country going to go this way or that way? 
Well, at the end of the day, there's no technical or logical answer to that. You've got to get in touch with something deeper inside you in order to make that decision. Um, and so, you know, being locked away in politics for three or four years was really being locked away in a, in a world of the emotions rather than in a world of pure rationality. And that was a big shift. And so in some ways, I'm feeling like this bridging between the two spaces, between the university and, and politics in the, in, the, in the outside world is almost like a bridging of heart and mind or, or, or emotion and, and rationality. Yeah, I think that's perfectly put. I mean, like, so if I can go all philosophical for a bit, you know, there, there, there's a famous Jewish theologian called Martin Buber who always says that the world is divided into it and you. That's what he, he used to say. Uh, and the world of it is sort of, you know, technical and dry and important, but that's the, that's the spreadsheet or the numbers or the facts or the logic. And then there's a world of you uh, which is the world of connection and relationship and feelings and friendship and solidarity and community. And those are just very different spaces. And you can't run a society with about a bit, without a bit of both. You know, everyone needs a plan and a, and a budget, uh, and occasionally a spreadsheet, although not too many. Uh, but also everyone needs this emotional space, this space of the spirit or of the soul or of connection or of relationship. And, and the job really is to bring those two things together. Um, and, and that, I think, has become really important to me as a change maker, thinking, all right, if we're going to build change, we need the technical bits of the plan, uh, but you need the spiritual or the emotional bit of that, of that uh, as well. And, and without the two coming together, we're, we're stuck where we currently are. Wow. It gives a philosophical grounding to the work that you're doing now. You know, Sydney Policy Lab could be understood to be on the it side of that <laughs> dynamic, right? As cool a name as it is, <laughs> as cool a name as it is. But what I'm sensing is actually you're seeking to bridge those two spaces and provide more ties between the two. Yeah, and it's really it's really good fun. It's really important, but it's really hard as well because, you know, the, the it and the you or the sort of, you know, rational and the emotional – you know, they're separable for a reason, which is that some people just feel very much more comfortable in one group than the other. So trying to break down the barrier between them and get people in the same space to learn from each other is a challenge. And that's, that's, that's really what this whole lab thing is about. So, you know, the notion of a lab is it's an experimental space and, and you can bring things you know, into, in, in, into contact with each other that you can't just straightforwardly mm. do in the normal world. So before we get too much into the it of the lab. Just one more question about the you, Mark Steers. So you're doing all this cool stuff in politics. The election is lost. I know, and we're not going to necessarily have, you know, you then do some work with a, a foundation, but then you come to Australia and then you choose this role. Tell, can you tell us a little bit about about that final piece of the journey. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was, it, it, life is hard in the, in the UK after, you know, election defeats. Uh, but also, you know, having been in politics, I then went briefly back into academia or returned to Oxford and, and just thought, well, you know, much as I love it and so many of my dearest friends are, are there, uh, I can't work out how to bridge this gap between the academic world and the political world by returning. And so I think I've been on, uh, you know, sort of the lookout ever since for an opportunity to combine those two worlds and that, those two experiences. Um, and, um, and then, you know, Brexit hits the UK as well and uh, all sorts of political turmoil. And I, I, I kind of thought, well, I, I can't do that there safely now. I mean, the kind of politics that the UK needs is, is emergency driven. It's, it's not the opportunity for, for big new thinking. I mean, that may come. Um, but where we are at the moment is, is in a very different place. So Australia, in fact, I think is an ama has an amazing opportunity to be an experimental space. You know, it needs change. All of your listeners know that and everyone who's been involved in this program knows that. Um, but on the other hand, it, it doesn't have the sort of 
you know, sort of turmoil in its politics that other parts of the world do, you know, in Trump in the US or... or the Liberal uh, Party caucus at a federal level. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's beginning, yeah? Yeah, so there's might, trickling you, in. You, but... might, you might see that becoming more and more sort of frenzied, but before that frenzy really grips... Mm. There's a chance, I think, to try some new stuff yeah. out and work out a new direction. So Australia, I think, is in a really privileged position in the world's democracies at the moment that it could be the space where all kinds of new experiments take hold uh, just in time. And I tell you what, that I mean, for any Australians listening to this, I think that that is and inc- you know, sometimes you need an outsider to tell you what you do well. And I think a lot of Australians don't think that things are going that, that we have this rich opportunity at our hands now because a lot of people who are battling away in social change, whether they're working on refugee rights or on climate change, the Adani mine, some of these big intractable issues, a lot of those issues feel like we're not doing well at all. Like yeah, that no, no, I totally understand that if you're in the middle of things, it you know it always feels hard and it always feels as if the crisis might happen at any moment, and that's definitely true. But then I think when you zoom the lens out and you look at, you know, there is a potential moment here um, that we have to take advantage of, yeah. you know, because, you know, who knows whether uh, the same kind of populist crisis hits Australia that's hit other parts of the world. If it does, it might do it in a different way. It may take, you know, six months, may take six years. We, we don't know that. But what we do know at the moment is you have relative political stability, uh, relative, uh, and a great, therefore, opportunity to try some new things out, you know. And potentially if we try some of these new things out, which have two spokes to them, like you're describing, where there's a sort of organising change politics vehicle to them as well as structural change to them, that maybe we avoid a populist crisis. That's exactly right. I mean, I think there are two two sort of golden opportunities or things to really aim for. On the one hand, look, let's try some stuff out which might stop things getting worse. But also, let's try some stuff out that the rest of the world can learn from. Because, you know, so many parts of the world now are looking for ideas for change, but their own politics is so enmeshed in crisis that they haven't got the opportunity to try it out. We, you know, we really have that chance. If we can try some stuff out here, you can then show to the rest of the world, hold on a minute, this is, this is the direction in which we ought to be headed. And uh, I think that's an incredible uh, you know, opportunity, but it's also, uh, you know, it's a burden. It's a responsibility and, you know, you've got to live up to it. Back in a moment. Building power to change the world is a dynamic process, which means it's always helpful to discuss your strategies and refine them. Pick apart what's going right and reflect on how you could be more effective. That's why we've set up the Changemakers Masterclasses. They're small seminars with a maximum of 50 people, presented by me, Amanda Tattersall. We spend a whole day taking a deep dive into one aspect of changemaking. In the first season, we're looking at power, how to build it and wield it, as well as examining the best and worst practices from around the world. We're holding the first ones in Australia in February 2019 in association with Sydney University's Policy Lab. And then we're heading to Melbourne and several cities in the US and the United Kingdom later in the year. So check out the schedule at changemakerspodcast.org slash masterclasses and sign up today. Maximise your impact with Changemakers Masterclasses. So let's shift now to talk about 
the lab and to talk about the kind of um, way in which you and your team um, at Sydney University are going to try and make change. You know, this, let's talk about the methodology that one of the many methodologies that might underpin this new kind of change that could change politics in Australia. So um, I thought we might, uh, you know, break it down because I think it, for any any person or organisation here and overseas that's done any work with a university that have possibly a sense of both the limits of that relationship and they would be curious and interested at the possibilities of how, how and when that relationship could be a really positive and productive one because a lot of people work with people in universities. Academics do play um, a really important role in social change even though many in the world of social change behind their backs may take the piss out of <laughs> academics occasionally, <laughs> occasionally right? But we we know that actually that relationship between, between thought and action is vital when it comes to making social change. So let's, I was firstly going to ask you to talk a little bit about the lab. And in talking about the lab, I was going to ask you to talk about, you know, you're seeking to make a new, have a new approach to change and to challenge a few weaknesses in how we work. And in particular, how universities work with, with those who advocate for change in the outside world. Um, and in particular, how we struggle to collaborate. Can you talk me through some of those weaknesses that you see that are important um, spaces that need to be changed? Yeah, I mean, the the biggest weakness, I think, is that we just don't talk to each other. And, and I, you know, that can sound kind of glib, but I, I think it's really important that you know, most academics, not all by any means, and you, you're absolutely right to say that you know, I've got to be, you know, absolutely fair that there are some incredible academics out there who do amazingly socially engaged, politically charged work already. But as a, as a kind of group... Academics tend to uh, talk to other academics and think about the structure of their working lives and their ambitions uh, in academic terms. So, you know, they publish in journals uh, that only other academics read or for presses, you know, uh, they publish books for presses that only other academics read. You know, and I was like this when I when I was, you know, before I went to work for the Labour Party, I used to write articles and you get really excited if two people read it, you know, uh, and then you go online and discover it's actually one person that just couldn't download it properly the first time. <laughs> so, you know, so yeah, there is a kind of academic sort of narrow vision. But then I also think when you look outside academia and think about other parts of the change-making world, the same is true of them as well. That you know there are you know sort of you know marketing communications people who just think about you know the style of stuff, and there are sort of grassroots campaign people who will always turn up for the meeting but rarely think about the long-term strategy. You know there are the economists who have great ideas about what's going on under the surface, but who rarely share their sort of ideas with those people who are you know actually coming up with the legal change. So you know we work in these little bits and pieces. And there are moments when we all come together, you know, perhaps a, a big issue comes up, uh, you know, something's on Q&A and everyone joins in for a little bit of time or, or there's an election uh, or a big campaign rally and you see everybody clustered together. But then very, very quickly people dissipate again. You know, they go back to their original worlds. So, so my strongest instinct about, you know, why isn't there a stronger sort of movement for change? Again, non-partisan change, change from any different perspective. Why isn't there a stronger movement? Then often the answer is because of this kind of separate lives that we lead, live. Uh, and so that's, I think, the fundamental challenge that the lab has to face, is that can we join the dots between the research bit, the campaign bit, the legal bit, the economic bit, uh, you know, the style and marketing bit, all of which are essential components of building a movement for change? Yeah, because it's, it's both the methodology 
of how we work, like the bits you talked about, and it's the issues, right? It's, totally. it's climate change is not an issue, yeah. right? Climate change is interconnected with a whole bunch of different practices. Climate change is an economic issue. It's a fairness issue. It's a justice issue. But so often... I know in, in the change-making world, people see it as just over here and it must be separate from Indigenous justice. It must be separate from, you know, but it's not. So They're that, all interconnected. That's exactly right. And, you know, the, we, we used to have this, uh, you know, people um, in the UK always used to go on about needing to build a movement for systemic change. And I kind of never really liked the term because I didn't really know what it meant. Uh, but the basic idea is that all of these issues that we now are confronted with, you know, mental health inequality, climate change, uh, loneliness, social dislocation, housing, you know, senses of belonging, they're actually all part of the same fundamental puzzle. And that if you're really going to be able to tackle any one of them, you need to be able to think about the connections between the pieces. And so that observation it is, is absolutely right, I think. Um, and it, it's just another way in which division or this idea of separateness holds us back from being able to do the work that we all think we need to do. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So I'm really glad that the lab is going to fix that for us. That's that's an immense relief. But so in particular, you know, for those who are interested, who maybe um, are not from from Sydney or not from Australia, who are interested in knowing, okay, so what do you do to confront this separateness, you know, these silos? What are the features of the work that you plan to do? Like, how do you plan to work in a different way? Yeah, I think the core of it all, you know, it comes from this, the the emotional space I, I was talking about earlier on, this idea that you've got to build relationships. So, you know, great... A uh, guru of mine is a, a, is a is an amazing man called Arnie Graf uh, from the United States. He's started in the civil rights movement in the, back in the fifties and sixties, and then has been a community organizer all the rest of his life. And Arnie always just looks you straight in the eye and says, "Relationship precedes action always." And so the basic sense there is, if you're going to overcome the separation and this notion of people, you know, working independently. You're going to have to build connections between them, and those connections are going to have to be strong enough to overcome any disagreements which come down the line. So the only way you can really build change is by building those deep sort of connections and relationships between folks. And so the core work of the lab is to get people to be in the shared space, get them to know each other, care for each other, understand each other, criticise each other when required, but develop that sense that they are all parts of the same essential movement. Uh, and that's the fundamental bit. And, you know, oftentimes we are so impatient for change. We, we want action or outcomes. Or, you know, my bosses at the university want key performance indicators ticked off. And I totally understand all that. But relational work is slow. And without the trust and without the connection, without people getting to know each other, you're never really going to get to the goals that we want to get to. So that's the, that's the fundamental component of what we're trying to do. Wonderful. So... If you were to describe it, you can be glib or not glib, right? <laughs> but the theory of change, right? You sort of ex have ex sort of explained what you're challenging and the focus of what you're trying to achieve by by a sort of culture shift with relational meetings, relate a relational culture. But you know what what is the theory change like? Theory of change. How do universities? How can your work help universities act as change makers with the wider community? I mean. The, the the straightforward answer, I think, is just kind of as my political sloganeering life. You know, it's just one word, and the, that word is together. Um, there's a sense of you know, it's, it's the disconnection which is holding us back at the moment. And if you can somehow create collaborations, partnerships, communities between people who don't otherwise work to each other, then you've got the opportunity to make change. 
It's not a guarantee that change will happen. Of course it's not, because there are all sorts of reasons uh, that you know, campaigns for change don't work. You know, and sometimes the ideas are the wrong ones. We should be going one direction uh, and not in, the, uh, in another. But the only possibility, the absolutely essential precondition, is that we do this together, that academics connect with non-academics, people from all different kinds of backgrounds. So that's the fundamental theory of change. Um, and, and you know, you, you see it and you know it. And, you know, with my sort of, you know, again, putting my academic hat back on, my kind of historian's hat on, you look back at moments of change in the past and they've always been moments of surprising togetherness. You know, right back at the beginning of the Labour Party in the UK, to use, uh, to use an example like that, it was the, um, the dock workers' strike which started it all back at the end of the 19th century. And what was incredible about the dock workers' strike is that it was the first time that Catholics had worked with Protestants, that uh, sort of non-religious people had worked with religious people, that young had worked with old, uh, that rich had worked with poor, to create a coalition demanding change. Uh, and that is where it all starts. Let's hope it starts here too, or restarts, because similarly Australia, like many countries, have had those moments of togetherness, but maybe not so much, not enough at the moment. So for listeners who have, have been on, on this journey with us, uh, uh, on this podcast, and they're thinking, absolutely, I'm interested in being able to help uh, or to practice this kind of um, collaboration, what is one thing that you think that should change in their practice uh, the practice of others to 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 make this this kind of work, this togetherness you talk about, a little bit more likely. I mean, I think if I if I was to say one thing to you know, your change making community, it's always I think if if the conversations you're having aren't difficult, they're not probably the right conversations. You know that that the one thing that probably holds us back is this sense of talking to people who already agree with us or who share the same set of aspirations or we work in the same kind of professions and who don't unsettle our presuppositions because they're in fact just echoing things back. And I think, you know, if we're really serious about change, we need to make sure that we're sat in situations with people who just say things that completely surprise us, who share experiences that we've never had and see the world in ways that we couldn't possibly see. And, and if we're doing that and we're doing it regularly, then I can think that, you know, we should be fairly confident that we're moving in the right direction. So, you know, sit down with somebody that you, you, you don't know and, and who comes from a perspective that you don't share and be open to it. Um, not because, you know, you just want to like everybody uh, or, you know, not because you want to give up on persuading people, but actually because the only way we build change is when we overcome the things which divide us. Changemaker Chats are hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes and to catch up on Series 1. Changemakers is produced by me. Our audio producer is Jules Booker. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We're also supported by Uniting, the Sunrise Project, Australians for Marriage Equality and the Organising Cities Project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our masterclasses if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.